This 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 is Loa 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 a podcast a podcast a podcast that features the stories stories ideas and people that shape Vietnam 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 today. Hi Loa listeners, I'm Lynn. We know it's been a while since you last heard from us, but we're back. You'll notice some new changes to how we do things around here. We're undertaking a bit of restructuring, so there are some updates to our program format. But we're excited to continue bringing stories you love about Vietnam. It's been just a little over a year since Will Wing was released from prison in Vietnam. Will was arrested for his participation in protests surrounding the 99-year land lease and cybersecurity law. One year later, Loa's Quyên Ngo sits down with Will to have a conversation about his arrest and time in prison, how he sees the democracy movement, and his overall hopes for Vietnam. I have here with me today Will Nguyen. It has been almost exactly a year since his release from prison in Vietnam. Firstly, thank you, Will, for agreeing to chat with me today. Yeah, of course. My pleasure. Um, so as I had mentioned, it's been essentially um, a year, a year and uh, some days. And your case was kind of like this this very bizarre case that confused so many so many people all around the world. <laughs> the, the the first question, I actually, I think I had just the other day, I, had, I was talking to somebody uh, brought up that I would be chatting with you. And then they had asked the question, uh, why? Why did he choose to participate in protests in Vietnam? So, you know, to get us started, could you talk a little bit about what was going on and what made you decide to participate in a protest in Vietnam. Sure. Yeah, and I think bizarre is a, a somewhat appropriate term to use to describe my actions. I, I, I mean, it's you're right. It's been a little over a year. I got out last July. July 20th was when I was released from prison. But you know what? I haven't really had a chance to explain, and what people understandably don't know is the the long uh, long term context behind my actions. So. I, I mean, I've been on the road uh, to political reform in Vietnam for, for a long, long time, but uh, I've, I've mostly been dormant in the sense that uh, I've mostly been observing actions, uh, observing events in Vietnam. So in undergrad, um, I actually studied uh, East Asian studies uh, with a focus on China and Vietnam. Uh, and then when I decided to pursue a graduate education uh, 10 years later, I picked Singapore and I picked public policy because um, it would have brought me closer to the region and I would have been able to uh, study a subject matter that would have allowed me to pursue uh, political reform in Vietnam. And then right when I graduated uh, May 2018, I had planned to travel to Vietnam to find a job there because I wanted to, to settle in Vietnam long term. Uh, in the first week of June, I found out about the protests uh, and, you know, with this prime opportunity to, you know, be in the country when protests occurred in Vietnam, which I, you know, after studying the country for 10 years, realized was an exceedingly rare opportunity. I, I absolutely chose to do it. So, I mean, short answer is I participated in the protests because 
you know, I've, I've been taught since I was little to remember the land of my ancestors. You know, even though I was born in the States, my parents constantly reminded me that I was, I was Vietnamese and that's something uh, I've never forgotten. Um, I, I never really appreciated the, the meaning of those words as a kid, but as I got older, as I went to college, you know, I discovered my roots. I discovered um, why I was born in the U.S. I discovered how my parents got to the U.S. And, and I made up my mind in my undergrad years that, you know, if there was any way to pay back the, the huge debt that I owed to my parents for bringing me to the States, it would be to help Vietnam become a, a, a freer and more democratic society. And, you know, participating in the protests was my first uh, concrete and active step towards that goal. So you were already invested in any type of social movement that was happening. And in mentioning your mom and dad, then you would say that a, the, the key to why you were so invested would be your parents? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it was definitely my parents doing it. And when I was younger, they would push me to hold on to my roots. They would, you know, try to force me to go to, to Vietnamese language classes on the weekends. And, and, you know, all of us kids, you know, we all actively resisted. You know, because we didn't appreciate, you know, why they were doing this, why they were forcing us to do it. But, you know, as you get older and you develop that political consciousness, it's, uh, it, it, yeah, it becomes a very meaningful thing to actually take their words to heart and to put it into action. Like when I went up to college, I, I started studying Vietnamese seriously for the first time because, you know, prior to college, I didn't know how to read or write Vietnamese. And my, my spoken Vietnamese was very broken and, and rudimentary. I could, I could, you know, order off a menu, but that was the extent of any kind of conversation that I could have. Yeah. And and I'm, I'm really glad that you're giving us all of this background because when we were getting snippets of your detention in Vietnam, I think that one of the things that was, was lost on a good amount of the media coverage is the fact that you, you know, you're not just some kid who was like, oh, like, let me protest. Let me jump into yeah. this protest. You know, right, right. You, you, you had already had pretty dense and deep reflections on um, the state of, you know, politics and the climate in, in Vietnam prior to your arrest. Yeah, yeah. And people started connecting the dots after I got out because uh, on April 30th of 2018, a couple months before the June protests, I had actually published an essay called North South, um, which spoke about my journey to find, you know, some kind of objective truth um, regarding the war between Northerners and Southerners. Um, and it kind of traced uh, my journey from when I first visited Vietnam in 2007 to the present day um, and how I went about talking with strangers on the streets in Vietnam about, you know, their memories of post-1975 Vietnam and, and what they thought of the communist government. And it was a, it was a, a very organic essay about um, my attempts to kind of, one, put together the truth, but also, two, bridge the gap between uh, communists and anti-communists and, and trying to restore some kind of historical objectivity to the uh, post-1975 period. Was that something that came up uh, at all while they were trying to get information from you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think they were very shocked that I, I knew anything about Marxism, Leninism, or like that I knew how to speak the language as fluently as they did. Because, um, you know, when they found out I was Vietnamese American, they were they were like, well, if you were born in the states, why do you know how to speak Vietnamese so well? They, it actually added an extra layer of suspicion in my language skills because they didn't believe that I was uh, that had been 
initially born in the States because the entire time I was in prison, the entire time I was in custody, I was speaking to them only in Vietnamese and in a, in a very uh, Southern accent. So they um, were not quite convinced that I was from the outside. Oh, yeah. And then when I started speaking to one of them about Marxism, Leninism, they were they were taken aback a bit because they realized that, you know, I wasn't just some kid on his way to the gym and that just fell into the protests. Like, you know, I knew a lot more about Vietnamese context. And I, and I knew, I think one of the interesting conversations I had with uh, another investigator was uh, he and I were talking about Dunom and I had studied Mandarin Chinese in college as well. So I could, I could write a lot of um, Duhang and Dunom characters um, for them. So like a lot of their names I would, I would write out in Chinese in, in <laughs> yeah. Wow. So it's like, they, they realized that, you know, my, my, the depth of knowledge that I had for the country and the country's history was much deeper than they had initially thought. And I think understandably that's something that the, the general public has kind of, um, I guess yet, yet to, yet to realize in the sense, because it, it, you know, it does take a bit of investigation to realize that there was more to this story than just the, the face value of it. And, uh, you know, these these are the kinds of things that I don't really have the the opportunity to talk about much or to explain my actions. Yeah, I think that's just that's just how it goes with political actions and media coverage of such political actions, right? I mean, yeah. I don't think that there's any particular um, political actions on the part of any individuals where I have found that if I do a little bit of digging. I don't find the background to it. For example, do you recall the the woman who took down the Confederate flag in in South yeah, Carolina? Yeah. Her her name is Bree Newsom. It's you saying all this just made me think of that. You know, when that first happened, the media coverage was mm. some crazy woman just climbed the flagpole and ripped down the Confederate flag. But but immediately when that happened, I'm like, oh, right, what's right. what's the backstory? You do a little digging, and obviously this was something that she's been thinking about. The depth of her her knowledge and her perspectives have been something that she's been developing for you know decades now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, with the 24 hour news cycle, that's I, I think that's something completely understandable. People's attention spans are completely shot, and you know, it's it's one headline after another. People aren't really interested in you know, the background or what motivated someone to do it per se. It's, uh, you know, when someone puts in a lot of time and effort into, um, you know, any kind of calculation of their actions, people don't necessarily care. I mean, you know, and why would they care? Right? It, it doesn't really have anything to do with them. And in the Vietnamese context, I've, I've come to realize that, you know, unless you're, unless you're Vietnamese, you don't really have any kind of emotional investment in the state of the country. You don't really have any idea of the political context of Vietnam and, you know, even after I got out of prison, explaining to people that Vietnam is a one-party communist state, that came as a shock to a lot of people. They didn't realize that it was, you know, like a, a, a version of China. Yep, yep. Actually, in one, in one <laughs> this is a while ago, but in one conversation with a congressional staffer, <laughs> when I was talking about, you know, the current political situation in Vietnam, he asked me the question, mm -hmm. wait, um, wait, so is uh, what you're referring to, is this in South or North Vietnam? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, think one, I think one of the congressmen made that comment in like in a, in a public statement talking about North and South Vietnam. And I was like, wow, this is, you know, you expect a bit more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that's just how it goes. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think this is something that Vietnamese Americans are guilty of too. I think with a lot of young Vietnamese, their understanding of Vietnam ends at the war. And, you know, after the war, they mostly know about 
pho and banh mi, and that's the extent of their knowledge about Vietnam. So it's not necessarily, you know, exclusive to non-Vietnamese. I think that's something that um, young overseas Vietnamese have to make an effort to do, to, to find out their background, to recover that history. I think that's something we all need to do. Yeah, a thousand percent. And you were talking about language and that plays a huge role. Going back to what you were saying, unfortunately, that's why the security police that were interrogating you were probably so shocked by your ability to communicate and to think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, like, it was weird because, like, uh, you know, outside of working hours, they would talk to me like normal people. So we would have conversations about like good restaurants uh, in Saigon, and they actually wrote down a list for me of places they recommended. So I was naming some of my favorite places for like Ban Kung or like Bung Mam, and they were they were so surprised that I even knew about these places. It, and it's yeah, I, I had lived in Saigon in 2012 for about a year, so they they were surprised that I, I knew a lot of the local places, and then they made their own recommendations. So it's I think the more they spoke to me, the more they realized that I, I was more Vietnamese than they expected. And then when I started, you know, writing their names and genome and stuff, they were they were pretty taken aback that I could possibly have known like a bit more of Vietnamese history than than even they did, for example. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah. Each day, like we would talk, and it would just we would reveal a little bit more about each other. And I think the you know, the connection that I was able to build, the 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 idea that I was able to speak to a person on the communist side in this way was um, something very meaningful for me. Because I know in the last couple of years, uh, especially in Singapore, uh, in graduate school at the Lee Kuan Yew School, I had a couple of classmates from Vietnam who were um, openly party members. And I always try to make a very conscious and active effort to close that historical divide to you know, make sure that they knew that I didn't carry any kind of hatred for them, even though they worked for the communist system or anything like that. So it's uh, you know, this idea of, of national reconciliation has been something I've been pursuing for the last couple of years. And my time in Singapore gave me a really good opportunity to do that. And my time in prison did as well. Yeah, and I'm definitely going to touch a little bit on that. Um, but I did want, before we get to that, I wanted to ask you, so, you know, you're talking about these really rich moments that you were having with the people who were interrogating you. Can you talk a little bit about how soon into your detention were these type of interactions happening? What was going on mentally and physically? I was, yeah, it's hard to describe because I was, it just felt very surreal. And at certain points, I kind of, it felt like I was, you know, living a movie. I was, I, I was kind of watching everything in third person because it felt the situation just felt so ridiculous, uh, so absurd that, it, that, that inside I couldn't help but laugh, but outside, you know, I had to keep um, a bit of a a calm composure. These kinds of questions started, you know, from hour one. I mean, they they whisked me away to um, a police station and and kept me there for for three days while they just. Um, they interviewed me and they made me fill out something called a, a, a lead which is like um, like your life history. So they make you detail um, family members' names, where you lived, what you did for a living, like for, for your entire life, literally from when I was born to the present day. They made me list um, all the schools I went to, all the places I lived in, um, my immediate family members, their names, their birth dates, places they were born. Um yeah, I mean, and I've never been in a situation where I've been asked to literally recite my entire life history, and I had to do this over and over and over again. And they asked you to do this at the very beginning, yeah? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. This was standard procedure. So how, how rigorously did you actually fill, fill this out? I mean, 
I didn't have anything to hide, so that was ground floor. And I knew I wasn't part of any organization. I didn't. Uh, I I wasn't. I wasn't scared they would catch anything because I knew there wasn't anything to catch because I, I did everything by myself, and and you know there wasn't any kind of uh, information that could have implicated me in anything more serious. So I mean, I was very open about about nearly everything. I would give them slight alterations in names, for example, like Vicky instead of Victoria, so that you know it would be a little bit more difficult for them to track down family information but other than that i i i, I just gave them the the bare minimum because i knew i mean the people that were doing this investigation they they weren't the high-ranking people and once it got high-ranking then i would take the situation a bit more seriously and that happened on the fourth day when they took me off to police headquarters um the first three days i was at a, a police ward and and during that time um, I was sleeping on the bench uh, right outside the entryway of the police station. So I could tell that it wasn't as serious as it could have been yet. Um, but on the fourth day when they rushed me off to police headquarters in an armored vehicle, that's when things got very serious. And that's when um, when they made me you know, go through my, my life history again, everything was uh, names and birth dates and everything else was on point. And what was going on when you realized that you, you were getting whisked away in an armored vehicle? I mean, what was going on in your body and your spirit in that moment? So, I mean, I, I, even on the first day, for the first three days, I, I knew things were getting more serious or I knew that they were being publicized more when the police started showing me social media posts of of me in the protests, of the video of the beating. Apparently it was going viral and they were showing me random Vietnamese Facebook profiles of people who had taken my picture and who had spread a, had spread posts about my participation. So that was that was the first clue that things were getting bigger. And then other clues were random people coming into the police ward and offering me food or buying me food, giving me like bun me for me to eat. And then I had a couple of other people who came in to try to pay off the fine so that I would be released. So I started having random people come in under false pretenses. They, they would whisper to me to, you know, hey, pretend that I'm a relative, pretend I'm a friend, pretend I'm your girlfriend. I had a, a girl come in who was like, just tell them I'm your girlfriend. And then she like ended up uh, paying the fine for me, um, for me to be released. But before they were, they would release me, they, they whisked me off. So it's like, I started getting these hints that things were becoming a bigger deal, that things were escalating when these random Vietnamese um, came in to try to help, and that only compounded the the surrealness of it. It, yeah, it. I, I, I had no idea what was going on because they took my phone, my backpack. Um, you know, they confiscated everything I had on me, and the only thing I had on my back was my torn tank top and and shorts. So it's, you know, I had nothing to my name, and I was still trying to figure things out, and I was still trying to recover from my injuries. Like, you know, my jaw hurt really badly. I couldn't really eat any solid food. Um, and I had a cut on my on the side of my head that I was trying to nurse a bit. So yeah, I mean, it was definitely very disorienting. Who were those people? I I don't know. I mean, I, I I'm finding out. One of them was a the spouse of a cousin who was part of the system. So basically, he was a he was a Communist Party member who worked in the Public Security Bureau. So he was someone the system who tried to help, and then. The girl was, uh, I would later find out, was an, an activist of sorts. And she somehow found my location after the information was publicized. And then she tried to come and, 
you know, pay off the fine for me. I, I don't know how they found out where I was taken, um, but the, apparently the information every time I was taken somewhere would spread online and people would try to and come and rescue me afterwards. But yeah, that's something I'm still trying to piece together myself. Yeah, and, and you had several random people who you didn't actually know who they were coming to try to get you out and that didn't actually make a dent into their grand plan on how they were going to keep you. Yeah, yeah, and it definitely helped spread the word. But the, the weirdest thing was that the only reason it went viral the way it did was because when I was out protesting, I met a random person. We became friends on Facebook. We connected on Facebook, and it was uh, it was just a random um, Saigon citizen, a, a very young young guy that uh, we had really meaningful conversation on the streets about why we were there, you know, about wh- how we wanted to help our country. So it was this one random person who was with me the entire time, including uh, including when I ran up against the police barriers and and climbed onto that truck. And it was this one person who, when he saw that I had been beaten and arrested, he brought my picture, my profile picture uh, on Facebook to a group of expats who then publicized in English that I had been beaten and arrested and and injured uh, and had a head injury. And it was that one person's effort to that expat group that helped um, things go viral uh, on the English language side. Um, if it weren't for that one stranger that I had um, made friends with on the streets of Saigon, I, I, I don't know how things would have turned out. Because if he hadn't brought my picture to the expat group, I don't know how my friends and family would have found out about so it. So it turns out that the person who made this go viral is a citizen of Vietnam that you had connected with. Randomly. Yeah, randomly connected with on the streets. Because I was... I was I had gone alone, but, you know, when we were out there marching together, there was a a very strong sense of camaraderie and you would just talk to random people. People were, you know, freely distributing water bottles to each other and making sure that everybody was okay. There was a very, very strong sense that, you know, we were all in the trenches together, that we were doing something that was very um, sensitive and dangerous, but that we were all out there to help each other. And, you know, so I had a a lot of good conversations with just random people. And with some of them, I connected with them on Facebook. And this one person that I did happen to connect with had connections to an expat group that was able to spread um, the news of my capture yeah. uh, in, in the English language. Yeah, and, and now that you're mentioning all of these events that were playing out on that day, that was June 9th, right? June 10th. Yeah, so June 9th in the U.S., June 10th in Vietnam. Yeah, uh, you saying all of this just reminds me, perhaps we should lay out a, a snapshot of what it is that happened that day. Could you play out what, it, what had happened, what had led up to this moment that you were sitting in the police ward? So the morning of, I had gone to Wingway to drink coffee and, you know, grab some food. But when I saw that nothing was happening there, um, I I chose to go to Wangwantou Park instead. So I took a cab um, from Wingway to Wangwantou and I arrived on the scene around 11 or so. And, you know, it was very immediate that, that something serious was going on because as I was heading there, um, there were a lot of blocked streets. There were whole avenues that were blocked off um, as I approached the intersection of uh, Huang went to park. So I got out um, a, a corner or two away um, because the traffic was so bad near the park that I decided just to get out and walk. And as I walked towards the park, uh, you know, you could see the crowds were, were enormous and they were holding their signs and their megaphones. And, you know, at first I wanted to make sure that these are events were being recorded first because, uh, you know, studying Vietnam, I know they have a tendency to try to suppress or control information as much as possible, trying to, to try to distort the truth as much as possible. So my primary concern at first was to document this and post this online as quickly as possible. So I tried to 
take as many pictures as I could, short video clips. Um, I tried to take wide panorama shots as a, as a kind of compromise because what ended up happening was I, I tried to record video clips, but um, either it was because so many people were live streaming or because they uh, the Vietnamese government has a tendency to slow down internet connections in areas where protests are happening to kind of prevent people from spreading word. So I, I compromised by taking panoramic shots as much as possible, um, as opposed to uploading video clips. So for the first couple of hours, I was taking pictures and panoramic shots as much as possible and uploading them um, in real time to my Twitter uh, and my Facebook and trying to tag um, international um, international outlets, international media outlets as much as possible. Yeah. Um, because I realized what was happening on the streets was was very historic and I had never seen in my years of observing protests in Vietnam, crowds this large and, and this vociferous. So, you know, so I tried to document it as much as possible. And then I, you know, followed these crowds for a couple of hours. Um, and we headed up a couple of different streets, but it felt a bit directionless. And, and if, you, if you read some of the tweets that I'd written, it felt a bit leaderless uh, in the sense that, you know, people were just walking the streets, but there, there wasn't any kind of real end goal or, or intention other than for people to um, make noise and, you know, make public their sentiments. So um, at a certain point, the crowd started heading towards the city center. Um, and, and that was when the police started throwing up barriers. Um, at first, it was riot police with um, their body length shields, and, and they would kind of stack rows of of riot control police against one another to kind of block the path of the protesters. But, um, you know, it was at that point that I started playing a more active role because I realized that one, these riot police were very young and they looked scared and they also weren't very physically, um, I guess, intimidating. So I, I realized that, you know, with the crowds numbers versus these, you know, pretty thin rows of riot police, you know, any kind of, push through would very easily break the line um so me and and a couple of other young vietnamese men uh we went up to the front and you know we we coordinated um efforts to push through and we did this a couple of times um and we broke the line successfully at several intersections as we pushed towards the city center um and, and this was this was uh and then namki kanya was the the avenue that we were heading down which goes straight to the presidential palace. So the, at some point, we kind of collectively made the decision that, you know, we were trying to meet up with other groups um, in front of the Independence Palace and in near the uh, Notre Dame Cathedral, because we had seen on social media that they were building crowds there as well. So we, we tried to kind of bring everyone to unite towards the city center. It wasn't until um, the intersection of Namki Kengye and Li Jintang that they they, they realized that these riot police weren't very effective. And so they parked a row of police uh, trucks across um, the intersection and, and they tried to make us turn left away from the city center. And, and you know, I had gone up to the front personally in Vietnamese and, and requested that they move their trucks because, you know, these are the people's roads. These people, you know, their tax money paid for these roads. They had a right to march on these streets and the police refused. Uh, so you know, realizing that I didn't have too many options left and and knowing that if I were if I were to be captured, if anything were to happen to me, 
it would be the consequences would probably be less severe than for a native um, Vietnamese citizen. I, I climbed on top of the truck and, and started waving people over and started helping people over uh, the truck. <clears throat> and then I think it was at that point that mm, the police had made the determination that I was um, one of the leaders of the actual protest. So they had um, pinpointed me for arrest. And a few minutes before um, I was arrested, I had a random female bystander pull me aside and warn me that I needed to merge back into the crowd because the uh, she had overheard the police that they were about to arrest me. And, mm. and as I was walking backwards towards the, the protesters again, that was when, um, you know, a group of plainclothes police officers kind of uh, descended on me. And, and there's, uh, there are video clips out there that kind of show the aftermath. Um, they, you know, beat me about the head and they, they, they dragged my body like onto a police truck uh, and then took me off to a police station for work, as they would say. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I just want to comment that you, you were really out here looking at the the right police like, hmm, y'all aren't that jacked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, I mean, that, that, that was something that thought. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, if I, even if I had like a running start, like I would totally push this line. Because, I mean, like, you know, working out isn't a thing that like young Vietnamese guys do that much. So, I mean, that was definitely a thought in my mind. It's like I could push through this very easily yeah. yeah but then this is like the the background commentary yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> i can take i can take these dudes <laughs> i work out yeah it's a <laughs> it was definitely a thought that ran through my mind so i mean that's why i decided to take that chance you know it ended up it ended up working like we ended up being able to push through these crowds yeah and it was also i mean it wasn't just the physical comparison it was also the fact that if you looked at these boys you could tell that their hearts weren't in it they were very scared they didn't want to be there you know the crowds were kind of yelling at them to step out of the way because they were like you know why are you opposing the people why are you not defending your country why are you blocking us from you know protesting these these unjust proposed laws you know you, these men looked these young men looked very very unsure of themselves and you could tell that you know they weren't very resolute about it either they there were a lot of questions in their head or at least the the expressions on their face would indicate so they weren't. They didn't want to be there. They didn't want to be there. And you can see that, and people have commented on it um, a lot on with all of the photos that are posted online during the protests. Yeah. You know, they always comment on the yeah. psychology or what's going through the minds of the the young gong like, um, who are yeah, ordered yeah. to do that. And so d tying that to the period of time that you were in prison, that you had mentioned these little connections that you made all along the way. How did you see that manifest yeah. while you? were in prison in terms of how young men looked at your presence in, in prison or even just the period of time where they're interrogating you. Yeah. And I, I mean, I found, I definitely found a very clear pattern in the sense that the younger the interrogator was, the more they sympathized with what I did. And, and I had, you know, during the, the fourth or fifth night when I was in the police uh, headquarters and they were rotating men um, in and out every hour until four or 5 a.m., um, there was one young man in particular who I, he, I think he mentioned he was 24 or 23. Um, but he was one of the few interrogators who just chose not to do his job. So when he came in to question me, um, he just closed the door and then against his um, coworkers wishes. So he had a bit of an argument um, with uh, one of his coworkers that he was going to close the door and just have a talk with me. Um, and, and after he closed the door, he kind of, 
he made it very clear through his body language that you know he wasn't there to give me a hard time or or, or you know interrogate me at all and we just ended up having a conversation a very normal conversation about about the current vietnamese situation he was very frank and he said something that i still remember to this day and he said you know in vietnam it's very funny because if you're you're too progressive you're labeled a reactionary and his general sentiment was that he was he was well aware that he was participating in a very absurd political system um and you know he he said he agreed with what i did he said he understood why any vietnamese would would do it would do what i did to you know oppose these these laws because they're, they're not just and they wouldn't bring any kind of real benefit to the Vietnamese people. He, he completely understood where I was coming from. And we kind of, it was one of the few times where I let down my guard because it was like, he was on my side. He knew why I was doing it. And, you know, he talked about his career plans, how he didn't want to stay in, in Saigon for very long. And he just felt like this, this work was wearing him down, that he was only doing it to pay the bills. And yeah, it was, it was a, it was a very meaningful conversation because you realize that there's, there's, there's hope there's hope that even people who are part of the system realize that the system has an expiration date. And you can tell by his tone that he knew that change was going to come with his generation, that this system, this oppressive system wasn't going to be around forever. And he was proof of that. And he was glad that he was able to speak to someone from the other side who shared these same sentiments. Yeah. Yeah. Digging into the people's motivations and their psyche, looking at a person's face and seeing all of the kind of the complicated things that they're reckoning with in their position. It's the most disturbing and fascinating um, part of all of this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it humanizes them, basically. It it makes you realize behind any person, even if he is like supposedly your enemy. And, you know, that's. And that framework is something that I, you know, us Vietnamese Americans have grown up with is the idea that you know it's anti-communists versus these evil communists in Vietnam, and you know you're, there's always this very adversarial relationship that's set up, and I think they they kind of anticipate that hostility um, the communists do. So it's like when you, they meet someone from the other side who who doesn't hate them, who who speaks to them like a normal person, it 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 humanizes both sides, and you, you're more open to you're more open to change, you're more open to to listen to the other side. And I think, you know, it, it, it takes a collective effort. It's a, it's like you said, it's a mass psychology thing where it's, you know, if you, you extend your hand out first or you slowly chip away or, you, you know, signal that you are sympathetic to whatever feelings they have, it, it allows um, change to kind of cumulatively take place. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to ask you in terms of your time in prison, there are, I'm sure, an array of moments that really struck you. If you were to um, speak of another one moment during your detention that really struck you, what moment would you speak of? Um, So after we recorded uh, the confession video that they made me record, so the the one that they aired on on tv was like the fourth or fifth take we had done multiple takes and the shirt i was wearing in that video was off the back of the young um the young interrogator that i just spoken about so the shirt i'm wearing in that confession video was given off the back of, of another police officer oh, how did that happen <laughs> yeah because i because i only had prison clothes so the, basically like what i was wearing in my prison cell was like 
they had confiscated from my hotel room like a couple of pairs of, of gym shorts and then a couple of tank tops and t-shirts. So I, I was very, you know, they gave me the bare minimum clothes. And, you know, on the video, they wanted me to look a bit more respectable. So while we were recording that video, we were, they were asking the other police officers if anybody had a shirt that was my size and that looked decent. So they, you know, the, the young interrogator was wearing a button down shirt that day. So the, one of his supervisors was like, hey, like, you know, let, let him, let Will borrow that shirt. And I ended up wearing it off his back. So, but after that, uh, after that incident, we were just sitting around having a conversation about politics, and and it got around to Vietnamese Chinese relations. And and this conversation, I remember very distinctly because the supervisor that I have I had the conversation with, it, I mean, you could tell that the he was just so genuinely exasperated about you know the China problem. He knew that the Communist Party was very. Uh, was in a very difficult situation politically. He knew, and I knew that, you know, the Vietnamese Communist Party has its origins with the Chinese Communist Party. They're very intimately related, and generally, the VCP will tow the CCP line um, as much as possible because it's a, it's a, it's an existential link. But he was so exasperated because he knew that the people saw that relationship and 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 strongly disapproved of it, and and so when they when the VCP tries to make any kind of nationalist move to oppose the Chinese, he knows that that they can't do too much because Vietnam is so economically tied to China that even if they tried to rock the boat, they knew that it was a catch-22. They knew that if they rocked the boat, their own sense of existence would be threatened because if they angered their the CCP, then their own existence was at risk. And the exasperation on his face was something I remember very distinctly because at the end of the day, it, it humanized the other side in the sense that, you know, these were political calculations that the VCP was also taking down to the individual level, down to supervisors in the Public Security Bureau to have to contemplate the China problem, to know that they depend existentially on the Chinese Communist Party, but to also know that on a nationalist level, they can't be seen as being too close. But knowing that the country was so economically tied to China that they couldn't be seen to oppose China too much. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And essentially, you're watching the greatest conflict inside the Vietnamese Communist Party play out yeah, exactly. in the form of a person, like an individual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he like it was like a monologue. There's a there's a there's a min, there's a minute or two where he was just on this monologue about how like. He knew he was in this extremely difficult position. He knew the Vietnamese Communist Party was in this extremely difficult position because they wanted to oppose China. China was our historical enemy. But at the same time, he knew the VCP was existentially dependent on China. So, you know, politically, they were trapped. They couldn't please the people and please the Chinese Communist Party. And it came down to, you know, that vital decision. Were they going to side with the Vietnamese people or the Chinese Communist Party? And you know the exasperation on his face you could tell he he still had not made up his mind yeah and and the interesting thing about that is the topic itself and kind of the content of that conversation as you're laying it out is not unique at all right yeah, you could yeah. you could find p- two people talking about this at any given moment in any yeah. coffee shop in vietnam Absolutely. but the fact that this was a supervisor in the mokongang in yeah, the, uh, yeah. who are up, who's a part of the security police force talking yeah. to 
somebody they were detaining mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. what adds on these very again bizarre layers to this entire situation yeah you hit it right on the head i mean it that just added an extra layer of surrealness to it that i was sitting here in front of a party member you know having this conversation realizing that all the stuff i had ever read about in books of these political calculations was was playing out right in front of my face like it was yeah it was insane yeah, he's basically whining about it to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's like, sorry, I, sorry, I have these cuffs on you, yeah. but you know, this shit sucks. Yeah, and it was so surreal because it's like you know, outside of you know what we had to do and the video that we had to record, it was like he didn't want to do it either. He told me point blank, he was like, you know, none of us want to be here, none of us want to do this, but you know, we received order, we received orders from higher up to do it. So you know, let's just play this game, let's get it done, and you know, like we'll be done for the day. So I mean that was a, that was a big reason why like we just we got we got along well in the sense that it was yeah. like, okay I realized the pressure they were under I understood the system you know I had studied it for so long I realized you know the pressure that they were under to just cooperate to to get this video out and that was part of the reason why I cooperated with the confession thing too is because I knew that this was like part and parcel for the system this is something they they do all the time they you know try to make you look more guilty than you are so it was like you know what. I realize what you guys are trying to do. Let's just get this done. Like I'll explain myself after I get out. Cause it's like the countries that do this kind of stuff, like China, North Korea, these, these countries that have to record and publicize these forced confessions. This is something that I hope the, the world catches on to. I hope the country, you know, the world realizes that no reputable country has to do this to people that they arrest. So I was like, if you want to play this game, I was on board. We got it out of the way. And then, Outside of working hours, I would just talk to these people like like family, like normal fellow Vietnamese. Like we were just very casual with each other. And you know, a couple of times during these interrogation sessions, when they were doing their work, they would just let me nap in a hammock in the office because they knew that conditions in the prison were so uncomfortable. And while they you know were typing up the reports or whatever, they just let me like sleep in the next room over in in a hammock that they had, or you know let me use one of their bathrooms. They were just like very chill outside of working hours. Yeah. So I, I want to bring it uh, back to what the bulk of this conversation is about: the humanizing of the other side and uh, other side and your experience of that. And so you know, you've you've spoken multiple times outside of this interview as well as in this interview, your feelings about the need for reconciliation. Yeah. So so firstly, I w- wanted to ask you about the reactions you got to naturally to these comments that can be perceived as very controversial. You know, what were the reactions to um, oh, those comments yeah. and what are and were your reactions to that reaction? So uh, it, it's definitely a, there's definitely a big generational divide. I've had a lot of support from young Vietnamese Americans and young Vietnamese from inside the country who support a message of reconciliation. Um, the older generations, however, did not take it well at all. And I think um, I, I shot myself in the foot a bit, especially when I went back to Houston and I spoke for the first time publicly at a night market in Houston. And I used the um, very sensitive phrase, uh, and I, yeah, I, uh, there was a huge kind of gasp that, that went through the crowd when I mentioned that phrase. Um, yeah, it, I, I definitely lost a lot of public support uh, after that talk because I think people interpreted it as one, that uh, I was suffering from Stockholm Syndrome um, or two, some kind of political naivety that I would, you know, try to take hands with the other side or otherwise 
um, deal with the other side in any kind of uh, constructive manner. They thought that was a a huge betrayal, one, and two, um, naivety. They thought I didn't know enough about the uh, political situation. But in my mind, I think reconciliation is just a more politically sustainable solution to political reform. I think that if we were to somehow overthrow the system tomorrow, it wouldn't work because the groundwork for democracy isn't there. And, you know, if we should somehow overthrow the system tomorrow, we would have the same situation repeat itself and that you would have a huge percentage. You would have, what, 4 million party members, 4 million disaffected party members who would just beleaguer um, the new democratic government and they would just repeat the cycle of vengeance and revenge. I didn't think that was completely sustainable. Uh, at all. And I, I'm as much for political reform and, and multi-party democracy as any, anybody else, but I, I don't think violent overthrow is a solution. And I don't think anything outside of reconciliation is a viable solution for the long term. Uh, and at this point, I'm sure, not even at this point, I mean, I mean, even before all of this, I'm sure you're aware of just the sensitivity of terms. Oh, yeah, 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 right? yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you reckon, like, it's just in terms of the... It was the phrasing. It was, yeah, it's the phrasing and the use of that, the, the term. That, that phrase and it's, in it's, particular. Yeah. I've had several conversations with activists and family members, and, and, and I'm just picking people's brains about, you know, is there a politically neutral term for reconciliation or, or, you, or unity, right? You have Huahup, you have Huayai, you have Guangut, and, like, all of these terms have their own political connotations. And what I've realized is there isn't really any kind of neutral term for, you know, uniting the people that doesn't have its political baggage. So, you know, we're, we're kind of in a difficult place here where I, I want to advocate for a certain idea, but I don't have a word for it. I don't have a word that is clean of any kind of, um, of, of political connotation. So that's the difficult position I'm in. So I'm, you know, reconciliation in English is fine, but I, I'm still struggling to find the politically neutral word in Vietnamese. Yeah, and as we're speaking in English, I wonder too. I mean, a part of what makes the what makes your point pretty clear, even in our conversation, is when you're talking about the humanization of these people that are presented as your adversaries. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if there were a word or a few a set of words in Vietnamese that could just communicate that idea, I mm -hmm. have a sense that that would be less politically such a scarlet letter in in vietnamese yeah um, yeah yeah I'm, definitely yeah not sure what it is yet but you know right. <laughs> yeah <laughs> well, when you find out let me know i'd love to hear it because you know i i still feel bad about it i still feel bad that i like alienated such a large group of of people like that you know that certainly wasn't my intention but yeah, I, 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 I'm aware and I've been aware for years that the idea of reconciliation is a very controversial one. But, you know, after spending time in prison, after meeting personally people from inside the system who are sympathetic, you know, I realize that you have to reach out to these people. You have to reach out for the people inside the system to undo it. Because, you know, the, the one strong point that the Communist Party has is that they're very unified. You know, they make their decisions under democratic centralism and they're very unified in their decision making that's one of their strong suits is unity and that's one of our weaknesses is disunity you know like any kind of advocating for any kind of democratic society you're going to have a, a variety of ideas and in action there is definitely a disadvantage to uh, disparity of ideas so i think you know if we can all unite around the a single path to democracy i think that would that would help a lot more and i think that would bring a lot more unity to 
the Vietnamese democracy movement. But that's something that I think the, the movement still lacks is any kind of unified direction or uh, unified um, path to democracy. And in terms of deepening ideas surrounding the political state in Vietnam, uh, what, in what ways would you say that your time in prison um, impacted um, the perspectives that you you had? Like, say, for example, you had mentioned the um, your North-South uh, piece and all of the different reflections and perspectives you had had prior to partaking in the, in the protests. Um, mm. Are there any distinct ways that you feel that your time in prison impacted your perspectives? I mean, they, they confirm everything I read about in books. It's like, you know, you read about government oppression, you read about, you know, how broken the system is, you read about the of a one-party system, and then you see it for yourself with your own eyes, it, it merely confirms it. You know, Vietnam needs change, and it needs change as soon as possible. You know, you, you see from the inside how dysfunctional the system is, how, you know, everybody's kind of just doing it to pay the bills. They don't really, you know, believe in communism anymore. They're, it, it's, it's about regime survival for them, but not much more than that. There's no central idea that there's no greater idea that they're uniting behind than paying their own bills. It's, uh, yeah, it, 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 it solidified things, if anything. You know, I've always been of the mind that this system is in dire need of change. The, the system in Vietnam is in dire need of, of an opening up of, of, of political reform and all that jazz. And being in prison and seeing you know, even the forms themselves, it's just so, like the forms I had to fill out were so backwards looking. It's hard to describe. Um, but like the typography and and just reading the the daily newspaper every day in prison when the, so like a couple of weeks before trial they moved me to a bigger cell and and that was when we finally got any kind of reading material but the only reading material that they would give us was the party daily uh, the bao nian yan the people the people's daily so that was the only thing we got to read every day but you know like just reading it like reading between the lines and you could just tell like. Man, this country could be doing so much better, and, and we're stuck with this, this, you know, backwards Stalinist system that is holding people's creativity and innovation back. And it's it, it made me it gave me the opportunity to experience firsthand what living under, you know, a one party Stalin system is like. And and then, you know, when I meet people from inside the system who are sympathetic to change, who are sympathetic to a better political system, it 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 really invigorates work that you're doing and and that's why i'm you know still on the path to vietnamese democracy you know it, it gives me so much hope to see you know people from from inside the system itself people who are part of the system itself crave change and it, it definitely has lit the fire under me to continue this path as, as long as i can what what's your perspective of the role of vietnamese people in the in political participation yeah i mean i think a lot of work needs to be done um at the grassroots level, I mean, the the idea of political consciousness, of political agency, is something that needs to be built on because it's like you have a whole, you have several generations who've lived under a system that that doesn't really consider um, their contributions or their their ideas or their opinions at all. You, you know, Vietnam never really had a truly democratic system after seventy five, so a lot of people have just checked out. You know, and political apathy amongst the young generation is a huge problem because when you grow up under such an authoritarian system and you realize that your vote doesn't really matter and you realize that your voice doesn't count, you, of course, would naturally check out and you don't care about these things. Um, and that's exactly what you're seeing on the ground in Vietnam. But, you know, as I've met up with more and more Vietnamese activists, young Vietnamese activists especially um, from inside the country, you know, it gives me real hope that more and more young people, um, especially 
uh, online uh, are, are, are taking the initiative to educate themselves, to build their sense of political agency, to take control of their own fates. And that's something that um, has also uh, really, really encouraged me. So it's, you know, a year out from being in prison and I'm more certain than ever of uh, the path that we've all chosen and that's for a freer more democratic vietnam thank you and then the, and lastly i know that you've been following the, all of the protests in hong kong and and you had mentioned to me that you think that these um these protests these actions they all exist um in they're all a part of the same kind of the same struggle can you talk a little bit about your reflections on what's going on in hong kong and how you see that being connected to the situation in vietnam yeah, so I mentioned a bit of the political context earlier in the sense that, you know, if you study enough of the history of the Vietnamese Communist Party, you'll realize that they had their origins from within the Chinese Communist Party. The, the, the political models that they both pursued are actually very similar. And if you study modern Vietnamese history, especially Vietnamese history in the 20th century, you'll you'll realize that the, that Chinese history and Vietnamese history actually follow very parallel steps in tandem, um, like lagging by several years. But the Vietnamese are always doing what the Chinese do several years later. So it's like there's this uh, slight lag in, in their history. Um, but they're, they're following along very similar, very parallel trajectories. And even with the cybersecurity law, the cybersecurity law that was passed in Vietnam very much resembles uh, a cybersecurity law that was passed in China uh, less than a year earlier. So you have these kind of in tandem steps that ensure regime survival for these two communist parties. That's, that's part one uh, in the in that uh, political context. So they're part of the same battle in the sense that if you looked at the larger picture, and this is something that um, me and a couple of colleagues have had uh, a good deal of conversation about, is that it's it, it feels like a new Cold War, right? It feels like uh, there is a there are two new ideological camps that are being set up, and that's the authoritarian camp, the non-democratic camp, versus the democratic camp. So you have the pro-democracy side and the authoritarian side. And the... The authoritarian side um, are using very similar tactics to to hold on to the regime. And the things that you see in Hong Kong uh, with agent provocateurs and, and ride police and, you know, accusations of foreign interference, these are these are tried and true tactics of authoritarian regimes to undermine the people's democratic aspirations. And and a lot of the rhetoric that you're, you're seeing coming out of Hong Kong and, and, and out of Beijing regarding Hong Kong is if you've studied the topic long enough, is old news. It's uh, this this stuff has been these accusations and these terms and this terminology has been has been flying around for a while. It's it's all part of the same fight, and it's all about the survival of authoritarian regimes uh, in the face of democratic aspirations. Um, this is something the Vietnamese have been fighting for for quite a while, and you know the the accusations that you know, I was a foreign agent or that I had the support of a foreign government um, or foreign money to, you know, agitate the people to riot or to protest. These kinds of accusations occurred last year in Vietnam and are occurring this year in Hong Kong. So it's, yeah, you, you see a lot of parallels between the two. And, and for me, in my mind, the success of one will galvanize the success of others. So I've been following the, the Hong Kong protests very very closely. And, and for me, it gives me a, a lot of hope. Um, and also reminds me that a lot of work needs to be done on the Vietnamese side, the political consciousness of young um, Hong Kong citizens, you know, is leaps and bounds ahead of 
young Vietnamese, but I want people to know that young Vietnamese activists are paying attention to what's happening in Hong Kong and they're taking messages, they're taking cues, they're, they're learning lessons from what is happening in Hong Kong right now to apply to Vietnam in the future. So I, I, I hope listeners realize that you know, there, there, there is a lot to be hopeful for uh, in terms of the Vietnamese democracy movement and how much young Vietnamese are paying attention to what's happening in Hong Kong. For sure, for sure. Thank you, Will. Um, yeah, of and thank you for speaking with us. It's again, it's been one year, and I am so glad that we had the opportunity to uh, sit down and just kind of get and dive into all of your reflections and, and everything that has panned out over the last year. Yeah, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to you know speak more in depth about you know what happened last year and, and the context behind my actions I, this is actually the first you know podcast i've done and it's uh it's definitely a format i enjoy and you know to be able to have like uh, just a casual conversation about this is, is very refreshing because you know a lot of the media that i've i've done in the last um, in the last year has been very focused on the larger political motivations of certain groups if that makes any sense but i'm glad this is a bit more casual and a bit more uh, open-ended Thanks, Gwing, for that on the record with Will Wing. Catch Will again on our next episode, but this time in the interviewer's chair. We have an exclusive story with Wing Duck Min Mung, who was released from prison August 2nd. Be sure to tune in to hear reflections on our eight-year imprisonment. This is Lynn signing off. Until next time.